Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Again, that is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children of the law saw the but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Evening, everyone. There we go. Evening, everyone. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a think about the Bible together. Join me in prayer. Uh, awesome, uh, almighty, everlasting God, we thank you uh, that we get the chance now to think about you and to hear you speaking to us in your word. Thank you so much for this privilege, God. And I pray, please, would you be with us now by your spirit, helping us to understand what we're reading helping us to see clearly what you want us to see and helping us to respond to Jesus with faith, with trust, and with coming to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, the, uh, the date was January the 21st, the year 1840. A French explorer by the name of Jules Dumont uh, was sailing around, doing some exploring, as you do when you're an explorer, sailing his boat down in the southern oceans, and he sort of accidentally discovered Antarctica, or at least he thought he had. Uh, he came across this great white land that he'd never heard of before, wasn't on any of his maps, and so he thought, aha, I know what I'll do, I'll get off my boat, and I will stake my claim to this land. And so out he got and stuck a French flag in Antarctica. Uh, he didn't know what it was called, and so he decided to name this land. He named it after his wife, whose name was Adele, and so the, this, this land became known as Adeliland, which is a, like, gents, name a continent after your wife. Like, that's a romantic thing to do. Uh, 
big gesture, staking a claim to Antarctica. The problem was uh, that somebody else had a claim to Antarctica before him. Uh, the British had been there as recently as seven years prior in 1833, and they thought they were the, the rightful owners of Antarctica. So a bit of a problem. You can imagine the British not being too fond about one of their European rivals kind of claiming a huge block of land for themselves. And so big dispute between Britain and France over this land. However, Britain's claim on land wasn't that straightforward either. Because it turns out that the Kingdom of Spain had made a claim on Antarctica going back to the 15th century, right, the 1400s. Uh, the King of Spain at the time had kind of issued this edict uh, that Spain owns all the land on the earth south of Argentina. They didn't even know what was there, right? But they said, "Raha, it's ours, which I think is such a cheeky thing for them to do, right? And so Spain, again, entered into the fray. No, this is, this is our land. We have a claim on this place. It's very tricky to determine, as you can imagine, who was the rightful ruler of Antarctica. And it still is to this day. If you go on to uh, Google, Wikipedia, whatever, search for a map of Antarctica, what you will see is something that looks like a pie graph with all these different countries claiming a slice of Antarctica. It's a very controversial thing. It's not that important, though, because nobody lives on Antarctica. It doesn't affect anybody who really owns it down there. It might affect a few penguins, but who cares? But often, when countries compete for one block of land, when multiple people stake their claim to the same thing, you know what happens? Usually conflict happens. Worldwide conflict. Wars are fought over land that is claimed by multiple people. Lives usually hang in the balance when that kind of thing happens. Why am I telling you this? Well, in one sense, the city of Jerusalem that we read about in this chapter of the Bible right here is in that kind of a situation. Uh, this Sunday is the Sunday on the Christian calendar that we refer to as Palm Sunday. It's the day we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And essentially what Jesus does when he arrives at Jerusalem is he pulls out a flag and he sticks it in the ground and he stakes a claim. This is mine, says Jesus. And in fact, as we're going to see, Jesus is not just staking a claim to the city of Jerusalem. He's staking a claim to the whole world. What's going to happen? Well, what I want to show you in this passage, Matthew 21, 1 to 17, are three things. Uh, three things that we're going to see here in this passage. The first is we're going to look at the purpose of why Jesus shows up to Jerusalem as he does. in this very strange kind of a way. We're going to consider the purpose of it. And then we're going to look at the problem that Jesus arrives to address. What is the situation he's walking into? What is he trying to deal with when he gets there? That's the second thing we're going to look at. And then finally, we're going to have a think about a promise that Jesus makes, an incredible promise that every one of us needs to respond to. So that's where we're going. So let's, uh, let's have a look at the passage. You've got your Bible open there. You can leave it open to Matthew 21. And uh, just for some context, where we are up to at this point in the, the story of Jesus' life is it's the final week of his life. He's, he's heading to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be executed in a week's time. And so from this point on, everything that Jesus does, every word he says, every step he takes, it's all planned and calculated meticulously. Jesus has thought this through and everything he does is trying to elicit some kind of a reaction, make some kind of a point. It's all deliberate and pre-planned. And the first thing that you find out, actually, when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem is that he's deliberately timed his arrival to coincide with a major holiday. Uh, he showed up and it's the beginning of Passover week 
in Jerusalem. They call it the week of unleavened bread. It's a week where the Jewish nation would celebrate and remember the Passover. You remember the Passover back in the Old Testament where God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt and he passed over Egypt, striking down all their firstborn children and saving the Israelites. This is a big week for Israel, right? It's the, it's the biggest week on their calendar. It's the most kind of volatile and like politically charged week that there is. It was a big deal. And what would happen in Jerusalem at the time is pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. You had to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, it's a bit tricky to know exactly kind of how big Jerusalem was at this time. Archaeologists kind of have a whole range of estimates, but most kind of settle on the figure of around 50,000 people living in Jerusalem at this time. During Passover week, what would happen is 150,000 people would come to the city from all over the country of Israel. They would descend. And so you can imagine, right, what Jerusalem was like that week. It was packed. You ever play that game Sardines? You know, you're all hiding in a cupboard. There's 15 of you there in a cupboard. That's Jerusalem at this point. If you don't like crowds, don't go to Jerusalem during Passover week, right? And so here comes Jesus, timing his arrival with this massive festival. You've got the scene in your head. There's crowds everywhere, all heading towards the city. And so let's pick up the story uh, from verse 1. And we see uh, in verse 1 of chapter 21 that Jesus is arriving over uh, the Mount of Olives. It's called the Mount of Olives. Don't get sort of Mount Everest in your mind. It's more of a glorified hill. It's not very big. Uh, But it's big enough that you look down from the Mount of Olives down into the city of Jerusalem. It's a little bit lower in the city. Uh, The Mount of Olives is on the eastern side. Uh, And so this is kind of a an artist's representation of what it would look like to cross over the Mount of Olives at Passover week as all the pilgrims are heading towards Jerusalem. You can see the crowds of people there, right? You can see them kind of setting up tents and camping on the hillsides because there's just there's no space for people in the city. So they've got to go and pitch a tent out in the wilderness a little bit. And, and so what the pilgrims would do, they would come over the Mount of Olives and they would go down that hill. It's quite steep going down the Mount of Olives. And there were olive groves at the bottom of the hill. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was, if you've heard of that in the Bible. And then they would go up a little bit steeply into Jerusalem. And what's, what's the big thing that stands out here, this view as you come over the Mount of Olives? It's obvious, isn't it? It's the temple, that giant structure there. It's the Jewish temple. There's one other feature, though, that I want to point out to you. You might not be able to see it too closely. And so I've got a little pointer here. Just up here in the back right-hand corner, uh, there is a fort It's called Fort Antonius, and it was actually kind of adjacent to the temple. It was like built right up next to the temple. And in Fort Antonius, there were Roman soldiers. That was where the Roman soldiers were stationed, their garrison there. And they were the ones who were charged with kind of keeping peace in the city, which is a big deal during Passover week, 200,000 people in the city. And so this is the picture, right? Jesus comes over the hill to this tiny little town called Bethphage, which is... Uh, you know, 10 houses or something on the hills. There's nothing there. And some very strange events start unfolding. I wonder, were you confused by this as we read through it before? It's so bizarre, isn't it? What happens when Jesus, in verse 2, he tells his disciples, hey, go ahead, and I want you to go into that town, and there'll be a donkey waiting for you there. And it's a donkey that's going to have a little colt with it as well. And you're supposed to just walk up to that donkey and just start untying it, and then just walk off with it. Right? Grand theft donkey. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples to do here. It's very peculiar, isn't it? But he goes on and, and you find out actually no, it's okay because Jesus has arranged this. He's, sort of, he's organised it with the owners of the donkey because he tells his disciples, uh, well, if anybody asks you, you know, what are you doing? Which they would, you're stealing a donkey. If anybody comes up and asks you, then you're supposed to say to them, the Lord needs it. 
right? It's like this password, it's like Jedi mind trick. And then the people will let you take the donkey, right? He's arranged all of this to happen. Now, it's very bizarre. Why is Jesus doing this? Why not just walk into Jerusalem? He's walked everywhere else in the Bible. This is literally the only time in the Bible that you read about Jesus riding a donkey instead of walking. Why bother? Well, he's making a deliberate point. If, you've, uh, if you know your Bible, if you're one of those people that kind of uh, is a Bible geek, then you will know that actually Jesus is not the first leader of Jerusalem, a leader of Israel, to come over the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey. It's happened in the Bible actually twice before. Uh, very significant times, these two times that this has happened. Uh, one was back with King David, the great king in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 16, you can read about it. Uh, David, after he has sort of uh, had this revolt from his son and he's about to be reinstated as the king of Israel, he gets on a donkey and he rides over the Mount of Olives, down the hill, up into Jerusalem, and he's coronated as king when he arrives. That's the first instance. The second instance is David's son, Solomon, the son of David. It happens to him too. When Solomon is being made king, his entry into Jerusalem is just this, on a donkey, over the Mount of Olives, into the city to be made king. Why is Jesus doing this? Why get the donkey? Do you see the picture? Have you pieced it together yet? Well, if you haven't, don't worry, because Matthew actually tells us. He makes it really explicit for us. So let's read verse 4. Matthew kind of pulls us aside as readers and makes sure that we understand the significance of what's going on. Uh, So 21 verse 4, Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus is making a very, very public, deliberate statement here that he is the true king of Israel. He's the one that Zechariah, the prophet, was speaking about, that that great king, the Messiah, who was going to come. That one that had been prophesied about for hundreds of years. God's king, who was going to come and save his people. Jesus is identifying himself as that king, and he's saying, yep, that's me, and I've come to take my throne in Jerusalem. Now, needless to say, that's a provocative thing for Jesus to do, especially at this particular time. Uh, I wonder if uh, you're familiar with the uh, graffiti artist, uh, or if you're feeling charitable, street artist named Banksy. Have you ever heard of Banksy? Uh, he's a, we think he's British, we don't really know because his identity is a secret. Uh, but essentially for 20 years, Banksy has been producing these really amazing kind of art installations, mainly kind of graffiti style stuff. Uh, and he, he does them kind of all over the world. He sort of descends by the cover of night, puts up one of his artworks and then leaves. And uh, th- this is some of my favourite artworks. They're all very kind of political and, and kind of social commentary, right? Uh, a little boy in a gas mask says, if at first you don't succeed, call an airstrike. This is Banksy. Uh, Around a phone booth, he will uh, paint and graffiti people listening in, you know, spies listening in on the phone calls to see what happens, right? You see the the commentary he's kind of making? Follow your dreams? No, that's been cancelled, says Banksy. This is the kind of artwork he does. Uh, But he also does stunts. He doesn't just sort of put up pictures. He actually does these kind of, it's almost like street theatre. One of his most famous ones happened in 2006 in Disneyland. I don't know if you've heard about this. It was quite astounding. Uh, There's a photo that will come up of it. And what you can see in this next photo, I'll get my pointer out again. You can't tell what you're looking for. Just over here, uh, there's somebody in an orange jumpsuit with a hood over their head and handcuffs. 
Banksy snuck into Disneyland with a, a mannequin in his backpack, an inflatable mannequin. He blew it up, dressed it up as one of the prisoners from the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center, and managed to sort of place it within the scenery of the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad roller coaster. And he sort of plonked it there, and nobody noticed for a little while. And then people started sort of realizing something's out of place here. You know, I don't think Disneyland put this theme there. Uh, and they were starting to get really worried. Disneyland actually thought that this might be kind of a terrorist threat. Somebody's making a statement about an impending attack or something. So they closed down the whole park. This big kind of reaction, right? Here's the point Banksy is an artist and he has particular convictions. Uh, convictions about politics, about social order, convictions about religion, about the way that the Western powers are behaving. And he makes these very shocking, very attention-grabbing public demonstrations to make his point, right? Can I say that what Jesus is doing as he arrives in Jerusalem on a donkey is exactly that? It's, ex it's exactly the same thing. It's designed to grab attention. It's the same thing that the Israelite prophets used to do. They used to do these kind of dramatic reenactments to make their messages known to Israel. Very public, very attention-getting, very shocking. Jesus wants people to pay attention to his message. What's his message? I'm the king, and I'm coming to my city to save. That's what Jesus wants people to know. And so off he goes. He rides down on this donkey uh, and then up into Jerusalem. And we read that there are these huge crowds kind of going with him. No surprise, right? There's people everywhere. Uh, but these, these people who are going along with him, uh, they are on board. They, they've pieced together the message that Jesus is making, that he's the king coming into his kingdom, and they think Jesus is the real deal. So you see what they do there? Uh, in verse 8, they create this kind of impromptu red carpet for Jesus as he arrives in. It's an astounding scene. They take off their coats and lay them down on this kind of dusty, dirty road. You know, thousands of people walking past and they take off their only cloak. This is, you know, you don't have big wardrobes back in the day. You have one, one outfit and they're laying it on the ground for Jesus to ride over in a stinky donkey. What's the point? This is, this is a sign of respect, yeah? A sign that they want to honour this one who is coming as king. And so they pull down palm branches, again, a kind of a sign of respect for royalty. And they're waving them and they're singing or shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is this, this word which literally kind of means save us. Save us now. It's this, this plea. Son of David, won't you save us? The one who comes in the name of the Lord, save us in the highest heaven. I mean, this is a, this is a, a big scene here, isn't it? You see in verse 10, it says that as Jesus comes in, the whole city was stirred, which is a really interesting word. It's probably not the best translation of that word. If you've got a different translation there, some of the words will say kind of riled up or in an uproar. The word is literally shaking. The whole city of Jerusalem, as Jesus comes in, is shaking. It's turmoil. He's causing a disruption by doing this. You see, the crowds, as they go with him and they lay their cloaks on the floor, they might be on board with Jesus. But the city? Oh, no, there's going to be trouble from the city. Because let's not forget, Jerusalem already has leaders. Remember that? There's the Jewish ruling council, the synagogue, the chief priests. There's also that fort up the street, Fort Antonius. That fort, which is like a footprint from the king of the world, Caesar Augustus of Rome. Jerusalem has a king already, and it's not Jesus. 
So what Jesus is doing here is a good way to get himself killed. But his purpose is clear, yeah? That he is the king and he's coming to save. So secondly, let's have a think about the problem that he's going to address when he arrives in Jerusalem. So, and put yourself in the crowd at this point, right? Huge, huge crowds of people going with him. The whole city talking about what they're experiencing. They're shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us, Jesus. What are they expecting him to do? My money would be on that they're expecting him to walk up the road, walk to Fort Antonius, knock on the door, start an uprising and kick the Romans out. That's probably what the crowd is expecting. But it's not what Jesus does, is it? No, Jesus does not go to the fort. He doesn't go to the Romans. He goes to the place that is the centre of Israel's power, the centre of their culture, the centre of their worship. He goes to the temple instead, which is, is just confounding, I think. Don't you reckon the crowds would have thought Jesus is making a mistake? No, Jesus, don't bother going there. They're our problem, those dirty Romans up the road. Go and deal with them, Jesus. What are you going to the temple for? Do you take a wrong turn, Jesus? Why is Jesus doing this? Why go to the temple? Well, I think to, to understand the significance of the temple and why Jesus goes there, you actually have to know a little bit of history. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a history lesson. Okay? Uh, very briefly, what I want to do is try and walk through with you the history of the Jewish temple in the Bible. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do for a crash course for a few minutes. Uh, and so I've got a question for you. Does anybody know uh, the first occurrence of the temple in the Bible? Don't we know where it kind of first pops up? This is not a rhetorical question. You can yell it out if you think you know the answer. Where does the temple pop up first? Any thoughts? Everyone's too shy. You're either too shy or too smart because it's a trick question. Uh, The temple is actually always in the Bible. Did you know that? Uh, From the very first page of the Bible, uh, the temple is there. Because at the beginning of the Bible, the story of creation, where God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is like a temple. Did you know that? It's presented deliberately in the Bible to resemble a temple. It's a place of absolute beauty, absolute perfection, where God himself dwells. And where Adam and Eve, the first people, have complete access to God. They're free to worship him, free to approach him. They have unlimited relationship with him. They, they have purpose. They can work in this special place, tending the animals and that kind of thing. It's deliberately presented, I think, as a temple. But we know that it, that temple doesn't last long, right? Soon, very soon in the story of the Bible, Adam and Eve are kicked out of Uh, this temple garden. They're evicted from paradise because of their sin. They disobey God. They're not welcome anymore, so God kicks them out. This, This God who has created this space for them, he is a blazingly holy God, perfectly righteous, no imperfection at all. And so there can be no sin present within where he is. And so eviction is kind of the inevitable consequence for their sin, right? If you think about like an operating theater, in a hospital, it's a sterile environment. It's perfectly clean. There are no impurities, no imperfections. And so if, if something imperfect is detected there, if there's some impurity, it has to be dealt with straight away. You cannot have that space, that holy space, be contaminated. It's the same with the temple. Sin is not welcome in God's presence. And so God kicks them out, which sucks for Adam and Eve. <laughs> really does. It sucks for us too, though. 
right? As we read the story of Adam and Eve at the beginning of the Bible, we are supposed to see ourselves implicated in it because we are people who have sinned as well. We are people who are not welcome in the presence of a holy God. Right? Have you, do, I wonder if you're already aware of that, that there is a dress code if you want to come and meet with God. What's the dress code to be in God's presence? It's perfect spotless righteousness. And we all know that none of us are wearing those clothes, right? We're not welcome either. And so once Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, what does God do? He blocks the way back in. He puts up uh, these, these cherubim, these two angels standing there at the entry to the Garden of Eden, and it puts a flaming sword kind of flashing back and forth, right? It, it's a do not enter sign. <laughs> On penalty of death, you cannot be in here. He blocks the way for them, and all that freedom of relationship, all that access is cut off, it's denied. And that's kind of the first temple in the Bible. That's how it is with God's people for a long time, actually, until the kind of second instance of the temple shows up. Uh, and so if you fast forward the story of the Bible to the point where God saves his people out of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, uh, when God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, God says something so astounding to his people at that point. He says to Moses, he says, if you build a sanctuary for me, I will dwell amongst my people. Which is just like a staggering thing for a blazingly holy God to say. How is God going to come and dwell amongst sinful people? It's absolutely crazy. How is he going to do that? Well, there's going to be some conditions. There's actually a couple of conditions. For starters, uh, God tells them, uh, when you build this sanctuary, this kind of, this is called a tabernacle, it's like a, a giant tent. Uh, when you build this thing for me to come and dwell in, you, you've got to make sacrifices. You've got to sacrifice animals. You've got to build an altar where you've got to kill an innocent animal so that your sin can be paid for. It's a, it's a reminder for Israel that sin has consequences and the consequences are death. If God's going to be amongst you, there's got to be sacrifices. The second thing that God says is actually, well, he is going to be present in the, in the center of that tent, that tabernacle, in the holy, holy place, but there's going to be a giant curtain put in front of the holy place that's going to cut off access to God. This giant veil, this symbolic and literal barrier between the people and God. And in fact, it's fascinating the way this, this curtain is described when building the tabernacle. God tells them, make sure when you build this curtain to block off your access from me, you embroider it with angels, with cherubim. I wonder if we can get that up on the screen there. A reminder for you, just like in the Garden of Eden, this is a barrier saying you may not enter. God is going to be present in his amongst his people, uh, but he's still inaccessible. Yeah? That's the second instance. And so fast forward again. This is the final instance of the temple. Eventually, the tabernacle evolves into a permanent temple, a permanent structure in Jerusalem. That temple's destroyed, and so they rebuild it. They build a second temple. This is what the second temple would have looked like. And by the time Jesus arrives in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, this is the building that's there. It's a building very deliberately fashioned on the tabernacle, the same structure. There is God in that tall bit in the middle, the holy, holy place. And in that holy, holy place, there's still that giant curtain with angels on it, reminding them that because of their sin, they may not enter. That's the situation. That's the temple. That's the crash course in temple history. Okay, you with me? And so let's flash back to Jesus. Here comes Jesus walking into Jerusalem entering into the temple courts, what does Jesus think about what he's going to find in the temple? Uh, let me take you back to some 
pictures that Banksy painted. Uh, these are three of my favourite Banksy pictures. Uh, this is one of a Palestinian teenager, and instead of throwing kind of a Molotov cocktail, he's throwing a bunch of flowers. That's a really beautiful picture, I think. Uh, the second one, uh, if you can't tell what that is, that's two angels uh, holding crowbars, and they're sort of prying open this gap in this wall. Really great picture. A third picture are these little children uh, kind of playing in this horrible, rubbly, uh, messy kind of area, but through this painted hole in the wall, what's on the other side? Well, it's almost paradise, really. It's be this beautiful thing on the other side of the wall. Do you know what all three of those Banksy artworks have in common? It's that they were all painted just a couple of kilometres from where Jesus is standing at this point. They're all painted in Jerusalem. And in fact, they're all painted on the same wall in Jerusalem. They're painted on the West Bank barrier, which is this like hundreds of kilometres long wall in modern-day Jerusalem, made of it's like 30 feet high, made of concrete and wire, and it separates the Israeli people on one side from Palestinian people on the other side. Banksy deliberately put these artworks on that wall to make a statement, right? They're not just anywhere, deliberately on this wall to make a statement. What is Banksy trying to say? He's trying to say this wall is a problem, isn't it? Make peace, not war. Come together, don't be separated. Life would be better if this barrier were not here. That's what Banksy's trying to say with these images. And when Jesus comes into the temple, he makes the exact same point, that there's a problem with this temple, a problem with the barrier that is there that stops people from coming near to God. So have a look what he says. Verse 12, uh, Jesus enters into the temple courts and he just goes on this rampage. Like something, he, you know, a switch flicks in his mind. And he starts like driving out the money changers in the temple, overturning their tables. He, he drives out some of the people who are selling sacrifices in the temple. Uh, Jesus absolutely hates what he sees here for some reason. Uh, in John's gospel, when John tells this story, he adds the detail, remembers the detail that Jesus, as he's doing this, hates it so much that he has to create a whip to drive the people out of this space. Jesus is seriously upset about what he finds. Why? Well, he explains himself, right? In the next couple of verses, he quotes two prophets, two of Israel's prophets. And he says, uh, this quote from Isaiah, he says, uh, my house will be called a house of prayer. It's a bit, bit of a strange reference. It's from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. And, and in that chapter, uh, this is God speaking. My house will be a house of prayer. God's describing in Isaiah 56 his vision for the temple, what he wants the temple to be. And throughout that chapter, he describes a, a day when all people will be able to come to the temple. A day where people from every nation, every social status, no matter what their background, will be welcome to come to God's house and to have communion with him. And Jesus says that that's what this whole temple arrangement was supposed to be. That's Jesus' goal for the temple. He wants it to be a place where all people have access to God. And so Jesus comes along and he said, my house will be a house of prayer. That's what I want from the temple. I want all people to have access to God. And then he quotes a second prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, you are making it a den of robbers, which again is a, a, a significant passage where the, the prophet Jeremiah basically accuses the people of Israel, the people of God, that they don't care about their sin anymore. Jeremiah comes along and he says, you are wicked, you people. You lie, you steal, you commit adultery, you worship false gods and idols. You've stopped caring about your sin and you think you're fine because you've got the temple. 
So Jeremiah condemns the people and he has this ominous warning for them in that chapter. He says that God has been watching you. He sees your sin. And in fact, in Jeremiah 7, God even says, I'm going to come to the temple, that house you built for me, that house you built to worship me in, and I'm going to destroy it. That's the promise of Jeremiah 7. And so here comes Jesus. You have made it a den of robbers. Your sin has created a problem here that you are blind to see. Do you get those two quotes Jesus is saying? Put them together. What is the message Jesus is trying to send as he arrives in the temple? What is this public demonstration all about? Jesus is saying, I want people to have access to God. But your sin has created a barrier. Your sin is the problem. And so I'm going to come along. I'm going to deal with your sin and I'm going to destroy the temple. That's the message Jesus is sending. That's the problem Jesus has come to Jerusalem to fix. And so just, just to set our expectations right, if Jesus is going to deal with this, deal with the sin that separates us from God, what's that going to mean for the temple? It's going to mean that the temple is obsolete, isn't it? That this, this whole temple arrangement was put there in the first place because a holy God cannot be in the presence of an unholy people. If Jesus deals with our sin, well, then there's no need for that barrier anymore, is there? We're going to have access to God again. That's what Jesus has come to Jerusalem to achieve. And so finally, as we finish, let's just take a quick look at the promise Jesus makes. The promise from verses 14 to 17. I'll read it for us again. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, said Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of infants, uh, children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he, Jesus left them, went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Now, in, in those verses, do you see the, the contrast that's being set up for us here? The contrast between some people who are really glad that Jesus has showed up and some people who aren't. You see that contrast? Right away, after Jesus has pulled his stunt in the temple, after he's gone on this rampage, the first people that come to him are the blind and the lame. And they come into the temple courts and Jesus heals them, which is nothing new. Jesus has been doing that his whole ministry. What is new is that he's now doing this in the temple, uh, which is a big deal. Because Jewish law at the time actually said that the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. It was illegal for them to come in because they were unclean. And so do you see what Jesus is doing by welcoming these people in? This salvation that Jesus is going to bring to his people, this new thing that he is going to do, it's going to result in these kind of weak people, these powerless people, these people who are often overlooked. It's going to result in him welcoming them into God's house. Somehow the blind and the lame, they've cottoned on that Jesus is for them. He is for them. And so they come to him and they experience something of God's blessing. Do you notice who else gets it right in these verses? Who are the other people to get it right? It's the children. The children who are shouting, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. Jesus quotes from Psalm 8 and he says, yes, they've got it right. They've figured it out. And so again, it's these, these insignificant ones, the ones that the world often overlooks, the, the weak, powerless children that Jesus welcomes and he affirms them. So compare that 
to the response of the priests and the teachers of the law. What's their reaction? They're indignant. They're furious at Jesus. They are so offended by Jesus coming and challenging the status quo, so threatened by Jesus saying that he's going to destroy the temple, threatened by what it will mean for their loss of power. They cannot stand what Jesus is doing here. And so actually, they've already set a plan in motion to see Jesus arrested and executed. You see that contrast between those two groups of people? What are we supposed to make of that contrast? Friends, we're supposed to, we're supposed to see there an incredible offer that Jesus makes, a promise that Jesus is making at this point, that he will take all comers. That's the promise Jesus makes in this chapter, that he will take all comers. You know, Jesus, he's not interested in your utility. Do you know that? He doesn't care how useful you will be. His grace is not means tested. You don't have to qualify. The blind, the lame, the children, every one of them is eligible. This salvation from sin that Jesus is bringing into the world, it is for the whole world. Jesus will take all comers. The determining factor, actually, as it turns out, is your answer to the question from verse 10. You pick up on that? We kind of skimmed over it. As Jesus comes into the city, the whole city is stirred and they ask, who is this? Good question. Who is this Jesus making such audacious claims? Is he a troublemaker? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Or is he something more? Is he the the king of Israel, the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord to bring blessing and salvation from sin to people who have been cut off from access to God? Is that who Jesus is? Friends, when when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem, when he said and did these things, he stuck a flag in the ground. He staked his claim. He said that he is the king, the king over Jerusalem, the king over this world, and the king over you and I. And so we have to answer that question, every single one of us. Who is Jesus? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your bravery in entering Jerusalem that day, knowing what it would mean, knowing that it was one step closer to your eventual death. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who comes in the name of the Lord to save us. Thank you, Jesus, that you care about us being separated from God, that you are promising to deal with our sin and to welcome anyone who comes to you. Lord Jesus, please, would you help us to see you for who you are? Pray for every single person in this room tonight that this Easter, as we reflect on why you've come and what you claimed about yourself, would you please help us to see that you are the Messiah, you are the true King, the one who is King over us. Help us to trust you. Amen.